let's pray. Uh, Father, we do, uh, this morning as we come to you, Lord, we do want to lift up our president and ask that you would heal him and, and uh, First Lady, Lord, touch our bodies as we think about, uh, Lord, a crucial time. And, and we just pray for you to uh, give favor, Lord, and work in that way. We pray that as we get into your word, God, that you would, God, you would penetrate our hearts. Lord, looking at this passage, it shows us uh, kind of some, some doctrinal stuff, but Lord, it shows us how great you truly are in working our salvation for us. So I pray, Lord, that as we, as we get through this, again, it wouldn't just be some head knowledge and, and maybe even some understanding of, of how the priesthood worked in the Old Testament, how it works uh, through Jesus, but Lord, greater than that, that we would know we have a great high priest who intercedes for us. So Lord, give us insight and wisdom, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, uh, this morning, it's interesting that the author of Hebrews, I almost said Paul again, the author of Hebrews, who could be Paul, brought up the whole idea of Jesus being the great high priest. And now it's, it's almost like as he gets into chapter five, it's almost like it like dawns on him, I need to do some explaining. Now, I'm not sure the group he was writing to necessarily needed it. Remember, he's writing to Jews who have converted to Christianity. So I think they had a working knowledge and understanding of the priesthood and how that worked and, and how that came together. But he gets this idea, I gotta, I gotta explain a little bit further, and it might be for this reason. Remember, by the time of Christ, and especially by the time Hebrews was written, the priesthood had become corrupt that they could buy that position, they could almost run for that position. It wasn't that way the whole time. So I think that's why maybe he's dialing it back a little bit and he talks about it. Now, I wanna give us a little bit of background and if you're not familiar, you gotta read Exodus chapter 28. That'll give you a lot of background. So, and you know, you might even wanna read Exodus like 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27. 28, 29, 30, and, and kind of get into it to, to get exactly what's going on. But especially when I think of how the priest, and I don't know about you guys, do you guys sometimes read in Exodus and go, I really don't care? You know, like, when, when, especially when it gets to the tent pegs, and he's numbering the tent pegs, and every detail I'm thinking, I don't care. And maybe that's bad. Some of you are going, oh, my pastor just said that. But I'm just being honest with you. But I'm always intrigued when I get to that part in Exodus about the priest, and maybe because I grew up in a, in a Serbian Orthodox church, an Orthodox church. Some of you grew up in maybe in Catholic churches and stuff, and, and you have that whole background of the priesthood. And I know when I was a little guy sitting there not behaving, and, and I was an altar boy, so I was privileged uh, as far as the Orthodox church only certain people get in that back room, and you had to be special, and I don't know what like code you used, because I surely wasn't holy, but I got in the back room. And I was always intrigued with the, the stuff they would wear and the way the priests would put it on. And you know, the, the quote, the vestments, right? And I would look at them and think, well, those look kinda cool. 
you know, we thought about getting them here, but, uh, you know, you kind of you look at me and go, those look kind of cool and, and neat, but what is that all about? I used to think, what is that all about? Now, you have to remember in the church I was in, everything was in, a, a, in an archaic Serbian language, not even a modern Serbian language. So I don't even know if the people who knew Serbian knew what they were saying. But I had no clue. I just, I just observed. And I would see those clothes and think that. And then occasionally, you know, some big shots would come in. I don't know what made them big shots. But they would come in. And this one particular, I think he was a bishop. He would come, and he had this, like, rounded, like, hat that he put on, you know. And my brother and I would just look at it, and it had, like, I'm sure they were rhinestones. But for, you know, we were young. They were diamonds. We'd look at those and... I wonder if we could pop some of those off and wonder if he'd miss them. This is bad, right? And I'm your pastor. Aren't you you blessed? But you look at all that, and and here's the thing with that is that tends to separate the haves from the have-nots. And even in the Old Testament, then you get into Exodus and you start reading about what the priest would wear, right? The high priest. And you read about, man, that linen and, and, and you kind of get into that and he would put on that undergarment. And then you read about the robe and every thread and how it was put in and, and the pomegranates on the bottom and then the bells in between the pomegranates. And, and you're kind of going. And so in my mind, I'm going, I guess that's where they got that stuff from from reading about that priesthood and carrying it over. And then, and then, but the interesting parts of that is when he would put on the ephod, right? The big linen ephod that would have shoulder straps and on the shoulders, remember, it would have two stones and it would have the names of Israel on each shoulder, six on each side. And then, and then that breastplate that was with gold chains and, you know, kind of blinged out, you know, with special stones and have all the names of Israel close to his heart. So you would read that stuff. And then, and then I loved his hat. It doesn't seem like his hat was like real bodacious with all the rhinestones and stuff, but it did have on there, holy to the Lord. So that's the priest. That was the outward adorning. And again, read Exodus to get the real spiel on that because mine's a little tainted. But you can read that and kind of get that. But, you know, for God, it wasn't all of the outward adornment. It was the heart. And the author of Hebrews is, I think, trying to push that whole agenda and let them know, listen, what even what was said there was not what was important and especially what they were doing in their day was not important what was important is that whole idea that god assigned those people god called those people and so he's going to use four verses to tell us about the, the, uh, the priesthood in the, in the line of aaron and how that came about and then he's going to use six verses to explain to us how Jesus fits into that that's important. And I know for a lot of us, we're like, I really don't care about the, you know, the Aaronic priesthood. It's not, it's not important to me, but it is. Because it's part of how we worship and part of what we do, and it's part of what our God gave us to demonstrate to us how great Jesus is. So, verse one, 
Remember, he's just talked about Jesus being the great high priest, and he says in verse one of chapter five, for every high priest is ta- or every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in the things pertaining to the Lord that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So again, Exodus chapter 28, Numbers chapter eight, give us that background that God appointed the high priest. And God called Aaron and then gave that to Aaron's sons and God set it up that way. But the interesting thing, he says, that he came from men. It's not an angelic being. It's not some superhuman. It's a man that God has chosen to represent man to God, to be that that intercessor and to offer up, what did he say? To offer up the sacrifices and the gifts. He was to be that one that was between man and God and and, and be that, that, you know, in in my mind, this is kind of gross, in my mind to be the butcher of all butchers, right? Because that's what those guys did. Do you ever really read in Exodus and then you get into Leviticus and the sacrifices and the details and then you start getting into Kings and Chronicles and you realize all of the sins that people committed? Man, those priests were busy. And you think about, I don't know if any of you have tried to butcher a cow on your own without any kind of machinery or wenches or whatever. Those guys had to be some buff dudes throwing around all that meat and doing all of that. You know, and again, I don't mean to demean it, but it seems like they were more butchers than anything else. And they're offering up those sacrifices and, and they're bringing them before the Lord. But their, their main, listen, their main quote position was you stand in between God and man and you represent man to God. Prophets would represent God to man. Now, it's interesting, the, there are a few prophets who were priests and, and, and uh, you know, there were a few prophets who were kings, but there was never a king and a priest. And there was never a king, prophet, and a priest until Jesus, until he came. So he lays that out, he kind of gives that background so, so that we have some kind of understanding in that. And then, and then in verse two, he says, listen, he says, he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to weakness. So he's letting us know, listen, he's letting us know that, that this person has to be a person who can, who can fill the people, who can relate to the people. And I think that was important. Once again, by the time they got to this, in, in, uh, or by the time Hebrews was written, it was all corrupt and they forgot about that. But that whole priesthood thing was supposed to be somebody he could relate to the people. Now listen, I know it says here, those who are ignorant and going astray, and some of us have like certain thoughts when we hear the word ignorant. He's not talking about people who are just dumb. He's talking about people who are ignorant and sin ignorantly, in other words, they sin unintentionally, and they just blow it. Now, you can read for homework, you can read Leviticus chapter 16, chapter four, chapter nine, and you can look at those, and here's the interesting thing as you read those. There's no sacrifice for people who sin intentionally. If you just blatantly sinned, you didn't have a sacrifice. The sacrifice were for those who sinned unintentionally or ignorantly. 
So when he says there that he, he's there and he's there, what does he say? He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray. And then why does, why does he have compassion? Because it says he himself has weakness. What does that mean? The one who God placed in that position was also a sinner just like everybody else. And I think it's important in our generation to remember that. Those people who serve, I think, and especially I think in a pastoral ministry, because for some reason, for some reason, people want to put pastors up on a pedestal and, and, and act like they're all that. I try and keep it real. And, you know, I tell you guys things like I'm trying to rip off the, the priest while I'm serving as an altar boy, and you're going, well, he's real. Because I would never do that. But... Some people put pastors on a pedestal and they, they think, wow, they're super holy. It is difficult in the world when, when I go places and stuff and I might be, you know, someplace with a stranger and interacting some and, and I generally don't interact and tell people what I do right away. But then sometimes people say, oh, what do you do? And I say, well, I pastor a church. Instantly, instantly, their attitude changes. Walls go up, they get defensive. They, oh, did I curse in front of you? I don't know, did you? It's like, I mean, they get all, all freaked out because somehow in the world they think that. But here's what he's letting them know and I want you to know is your pastor's just like you. You know, sometimes people will come to me and they say, I really need help in this area. And I go, why don't you go to Jesus? Why don't you go to him? And then, and then here's, the, here's the real truth. I'm having a hard time doing my life. I, I can't do your life. I gotta, I gotta work on my life and, and it's real. Now, having said that, I do need to scold you guys some. Because often when I'm gone, the chairs are empty. Shame on you. Shame, shame on you. And I hope some of you are really embarrassed. We have cameras. We know. Don't do that. Why? Can't you receive teaching from anybody who God places? It's an important thing, and it always bothers my heart. You know, and, and I don't think anybody in this room does this. That was sarcasm. Some people drive, and if my car's not there, they keep going. They don't even get out of their cars. I've been tempted not to ever bring a car. I'll hitchhike. Come on, saints. And his point here is we need to understand that person serving in that area, whether it's in the first century or the 21st century, that person has all the weaknesses you have and they're not gonna be perfect people, so don't make them perfect. And they're there, but here's the thing, then they can have compassion on those who blow it. Now something I've found, the grayer your hair gets, the more compassion you get as you move along. Pastor Jack and I were talking just last night before the service, we were talking and, and we were talking about sometimes young and, and often newer believers and younger believers, man, they are so dogmatic. It's like black and white and everything is black and white. And I told Pastor Jack, isn't it interesting as our heart, hair gets gray, issues get more gray? And we kind of get in that gray area because you have more compassion. Because why? Because you've lived life. And you've experienced certain things. And here's what you know, man. 
you know that those people need help. Now listen, it doesn't mean you become compromising and you accept sin, but you, you're there to help them. So that's what he's saying. Now, as he continues to describe them here in verse three, he says, because of this, he is required as for the people and also for himself to offer sacrifices for sin, and no man takes his honor upon himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So he's letting us know, listen, he's letting us know, number one, that the guy is there to offer sacrifices, listen, for the sins of the people, but he's first got to offer the sacrifice for his own sin. Why? He's a sinner, and he has to do that, so he's putting that up, and then I think this is the important part where he says, hey, they don't take this honor upon himself. Again, by the time he was written, they were doing that, but it wasn't so, and again, for homework, you can read. We got Exodus 28 there again, Leviticus 8, Numbers 16, uh, 20, and 25. And you begin to look at those and you understand, listen, you understand you don't take that position for yourself. God appoints you and God places that person in that position and then you serve. And, he, and yet, even before the time of the first century, weren't there certain people that wanted that position? Remember Korah, Korah's rebellion, that's in Numbers chapter 16. That's why I like to read the book of Numbers. As you go through Numbers, there's little gems in there, and this may sound gross, but to me, this is one of those old gems, where the people, Korah and his followers, they come up to Moses and Aaron, and they go, who do you guys think you are? We're gonna take over. And it's always, I always kind of chuckle at that because sometimes, listen, sometimes young and zealous people, you know, they, they come and, and some people even come here. I need to take over for you. I'm not ready to move yet. God has called me in this place. God has placed me and he hasn't unplaced me. If God unplaced me, I would, I would go. But, but listen, it's always funny. And, and I chuckle because they come against Moses. You remember what Moses said? What a humble guy. He goes, you know what? I don't know if God told you guys to do this or not. So here's the deal. If you're alive tomorrow, we will know that God placed you here. If you're not, we will know he didn't. And like the ground opens up and sucks them in, right? I mean, every time I read that, I think the ground did this, suck them in, and shut. Do you know the rest? I bet you it was 25 years before anybody challenged Moses again. Right? I mean, you see something like that, you're going, whoa, we need to back off. And sometimes I wish God would do that today. And I'm, I'm not talking about here. I'm talking about people who put themselves, especially in the position of handling God's word, when they're not. So you had Korah, and then, and then, and then remember Saul, King Saul? And Samuel was slow in coming. That's in, in 2 Samuel, whatever chapter we have there, 13. Remember, Samuel wasn't coming, and Saul thought, well, I can take over. And what did it cost him? Everything. He lost, the, he lost his, his position. He lost, he lost the king. And then Uzziah later on, when Uzziah uh, decided he was going to offer up a censor. Listen, you don't take that position lightly is what he's saying. Remember Uzziah? He took over. What happened to him? He got leprosy till he died of that one arm where he touched what he wasn't supposed to. So here's the point. No man takes this upon himself. You don't decide, I'm going to do this. God places a person there. And once you know once you know God has placed you someplace, that gives you great confidence. 
You see, I don't have to defend my position because I know God has placed me here and God will defend that position. I don't have to fight for it. When young people come up, I go, you know what? Give it your best shot, but the ground's gonna open up and swallow you tomorrow. So, you know, I wouldn't do that if I were you. But, but no, do you understand? You have that confidence in God and you know that. So that's the priesthood. That's, that's the people who were supposed to be representing the Jews. Now he's gonna take this and transfer it because he's talked three times now about Jesus being the great high priest. And so now he's gonna listen. He's gonna develop that whole idea of what does that mean for them and what does that mean for you and me? So look at verse five. He says, so Christ. Now listen, you should underline the word Christ. Again, in our generation, in our culture, that doesn't mean a lot. We read so Christ and, and it doesn't mean a lot. We kind of think that's maybe Jesus' last name or something. Look at it this way. Listen, don't keep, some of you are reading. You're not supposed to be reading. You're supposed to be listening. Here's what he's saying. So the Messiah. Listen carefully because the Jews were relating Messiahship. Messiahship, Messiahship. So what is he doing? He's letting them know this one who came was the Messiah, and you need to understand something. Here's what was said, and here's proof that the Messiah is our king and our priest and our prophet. So kind of keep that in mind. So let's read it this way. Let's go this way. So also Messiah did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he, talking about God, who said to him, the Messiah, you are my son, today I have begotten you, quoting Psalm 2, and also in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So listen, I, I love again, the author of Hebrews never gives references. Don't you love that? And he just kind of like throws it out there. But here's what he's saying. So the Messiah didn't take this honor upon himself. Jesus, even as the second person of the Trinity, did not take that honor upon himself. He was appointed by God. And once again, it's important, man. If you know God has appointed you, it gives you great confidence in where you're at. And I don't care where you're at. I don't care. Listen, I don't care if you're like serving in the parking lot and parking cars. If that's where God has appointed you, you have great confidence in that. Woo, this is where God wants me. You have a sureness there, and it's important. So here's what he's saying. Listen, he's saying it was, it was God who appointed him to become high priest. Now, stop and think for a moment, because this is important. Jesus, he's obviously talking about Jesus. Jesus was born in the lineage of David which is from the tribe of Judah. Hmm. Houston, we have a problem. Where did the high priest come from? Levi. A Jew, listen, a Jew is going to be, their minds are gonna be turning at this point. What do you mean this one that you're calling Messiah, Jesus, what do you mean he was appointed high priest? Because that doesn't compute in our, in, our, in, you know, in our whole way of thinking and everything. And think about this. Everything they believed up to this point in their life had Judaism as a background. That's their foundation. That's what they're living by. And now all of a sudden you got this guy kind of like saying, forget that. 
and let's go here. He's the high priest. He can't be the high priest. He's not from the tribe of Levi. So first he lets him know, according to Psalm chapter 2, that God called him his son and giving him that sense of royalty. First he's describing him as a king. He's, he's got the royalty. He, I, I love Psalm 2. I love reading Psalm 2. And I'm not a big Psalms guy, but I just love Psalms 2 because it, it describes Jesus in it and it describes him perfectly as the ruler, as the royalty. You've got to read the whole Psalm not just this one verse. You get into that whole psalm. And then I love this part of Psalm 2. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. I love that phrase. I just, and listen, he's not telling us to go around kissing the statue of Jesus or something. He's telling us to worship him. Kiss means worship. So I love that. Listen, oh, sorry, sorry. So back to here. So he is royalty. And then he says this. Here's how he he verifies his, his uh, priesthood. He also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's Psalm 110. Oh, oh. He's not following in the lineage of Levi and Aaron. Oh. And then these people are going like this. Ding, 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 ding. Melchizedek, Melchizedek, Melchizedek. Yeah, I remember Mel. He's, he's the guy in Genesis, right? He's the guy that showed up that was, get this, a king and a priest. Hmm. So more on him later. He just introduces him. He's gonna talk more about him in chapter seven, so we're not gonna go in detail. Do not read chapter seven right now. We're studying chapter five. You can read it tonight when you go home. Do not read it right now. So he's going to get more into that. So we're not going to talk about him a lot other than to let you know there's a whole other thing going on here. Listen carefully. That's okay. So Jesus is a high priest according to the lineage of Melchizedek. So then he lays that out who in verse 7. So who, this one, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Wow. I mean, I got to be really honest. I read that verse and I get a lot of that verse, but then there's part of that verse I'm going, I don't like this. Do you ever read your Bible and think, I wish I wasn't there? Because I'm having a hard time understanding it. So I'm having a hard time putting it together. I understand that Jesus, listen, I understand that when Jesus was in his flesh, he prayed a lot. He prayed about when he anointed or picked the 12. He prayed, you know, through some storms. He, he prayed, you know, when, when he even prayed for us. In John chapter 17, hey, if you ever get really bummed out, if you get bummed out with life and you get really down, read John chapter 17. That's Jesus' prayer for you. And Jesus prayed for us. And then there was his big prayer, right, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I'm wondering if that's probably what this author is referring to when he says, listen, he offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears. Do you remember how emotional Jesus got when he began to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? It was an intense time. Now, the problem I have with this verse is this. It says, listen, it says that he offered up those prayers to him who was able to save him from death. And it says, and he was heard 
because of his godly fear. So the implication is his prayer was answered, was it? Jesus was not saved from death. Jesus died on the cross. So what exactly is going on? Because I read this and I think either there's a contradiction or my brain's not functioning correctly and I'm not getting an understanding. I think a better way to phrase this would be he prayed to him who could save him through death, out of death. When Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, I don't think he was afraid of the physical aspect of dying. I think he had already dealt with that. He told his disciples early, early on, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna be given over to hands of men, the enemy, they're gonna kill me. He wasn't, he wasn't afraid of that. And there's a lot of martyrs, right? Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Read you know, some books. There's, Tons of people who have faced that death without fear. So I don't think that's what, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, I don't think that's what he's afraid of. What does he pray in the Garden of Gethsemane so strong? If there's any other way, any other way for what? For salvation. How did Jesus pay for our sins? It wasn't his physical death. He paid for his, our sins by being separated from God. That death and he was separated, listen, he's looking at that and he's understanding that is going to be horrific. And he is going to take the wrath of God that every sin ever committed, past, present, and future, he's gonna take all of that wrath upon himself and he's going to experience that. Now wouldn't you be asking for another way? If there's any other way, and then what does he say? The greatest words ever. But not my will, but your will. I submit to you, we'll get to that here in a moment. So I think his prayer was heard, right? I think his prayer was heard, and I think it was heard. Why? Because, because he had that godly fear of what he was facing. And was he saved out of death or through death? Absolutely, he was raised. You see what we're talking about? He's not saying, I don't want to die. He's saying, I don't want to stay dead. And he was saved through that. So then we deal with that part. Now it gets a little bit trickier here in verse eight when it says, and though he, or though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by things which he suffered. And again, you could have a little bit of trouble with that. And then the next verse, and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So one we Jesus learned obedience. Wasn't Jesus perfect? Jesus became perfected. And you read those and your mind has to start going and you have to start then asking questions. It's not that what was written was wrong. It's that sometimes our understanding of putting it together was wrong. Jesus did learn obedience, not because he was disobedient, but he learned what it was to be obedient all the way through. As a human, he had to go all the way through that. And he had to go to the end. And he did, in that sense, learn obedience. Or we might say he completed what he came for. He didn't sh uh, shrink back from that. Again, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's saying, I don't want to face that. Again, not the physical, the eternal. The eternal punishment. And then when it says he became perfected, we might put it this way. And in one way he did. This person Jesus Christ of Nazareth did become 
perfected when he rose from the dead because that sealed our eternal salvation. Why did he come? Why did Jesus come to this planet? To die to pay for our sins. He didn't come to be a good teacher. He didn't come to be a prophet. He didn't come to be a good example. He didn't come to elevate mankind. He came for one reason, to die. And when you read then that he, uh, in, in verse nine, having been perfected, in that sense he was, he did exactly what he came and accomplished what he came to accomplish. So not perfected from imperfection, but perfected on, hey, this is what I came to do. I'm gonna do it. And then here's what I love. He became, he, he, he uh, was perfected. He became the author of eternal salvation. Woo! I'm going to heaven. Why? Because I'm eternally saved. Jesus didn't almost save me. He didn't give me a kickstart. He didn't say, here, Pat, I did this. Now you finish it. I'm eternally saved. Think about, now think about that if you're a Jewish person who came to Christ and you began believing in him, and here's all you knew up to that point is you knew on the Day of Atonement, the high priest made atonement for your sin. Do you, do you understand there's a difference from atonement and paying for your sin and taking your sin away? I heard it described years ago this way, and I think it's a good description. Because atonement is just covering. It just covers your sin. Doesn't deal with it. Jesus dealt with it. Jesus on the cross said, it is finished, right? So atonement can be looked at this way. You go out to a nice restaurant. And by nice, I mean you're graduating from the ones that have the menu behind the, the counter, right? And now you're, you're in one where you're gonna sit down. They have, and they have tablecloths and type of thing. You know, maybe a special event with you and and. and and that one that you adore, and you're sitting down, and you're having that special time, and a waiter comes and spills coffee all over the tablecloth. And you look at him and go, that's kind of gross. And they go, don't worry, I'll take care of it. And they come and they put a napkin over it. And you're going, well, that's better, but it's still funky underneath. That's atonement. You lift up the napkin, you're still funky underneath. Nothing got taken care of. What Jesus did, justification, is this. The waiter says, you know what? I'm so sorry. Takes everything off, takes that tablecloth, goes and washes it, bleaches it, takes care of it, comes back, and there's no stain whatsoever. That's what Jesus did. And that's what he's explaining to them. Listen, forget about that day of atonement. Forget about those sacrifices. And he's gonna, he's gonna talk quite a bit about sacrifice and all of that that goes on, how much greater Jesus was. So right here, right now, he says, eternal salvation to all who obey him. What do we have to do to obey Jesus? Thank you. We just have to believe him. That's obedience. Listen, he's not talking about obeying the law. He's talking about believing. Listen, and you could write it this way, that he's the author of salvation to all who believe him. And then he says this, believe him 
called by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Listen, this one is the high priest. He brings up Melchizedek again. He's not gonna talk about, here's what's weird, is he's not gonna talk about Melchizedek till he gets to chapter seven. Look at the first part of verse 11. We're not gonna do that today, but look at the first part of verse seven, of whom we have much to say. Here's what he's, here's what he's doing. We got a lot to say about Melchizedek, but first we gotta take care of you guys. So he's going to explain a lot in chapter 7. You can read ahead. Not now. You can read ahead this afternoon. But he's going to go on, and here's what's interesting. Read the rest of chapter 5 and, and chapter 6 before you read about Melchizedek. Because the rest of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6 is about this one thing, becoming mature in Christ. I like to say it this way, getting your big boy pants on growing up. You see, these people were still struggling with the idea, should we go back to Judaism? And some of us struggle, man. Our, our, our Christian walk isn't what it should be because we struggle. We're not growing in him. We're immature. And listen, I don't mean that as a derogatory thing. I mean that as a real thing. We're not becoming mature in Christ. Therefore, we're not enjoying our relationship with him. And we're not enjoying our walk through this life. Because why? Because we keep thinking, well, maybe, maybe if I did this. Or maybe if I did that. But once you get settled in your heart, man, that Jesus is the only way that you're going to stay with Jesus. And you know what? You don't care what your background was. Now, I... I think I was blessed. I didn't bring a lot of religious background in. And you go, but Pat, you were in that Orthodox church. I was only there physically. I very rarely showed up mentally. So, you know, it did not affect me. And, and I learned nothing about, I just knew when to come out this door, when to stand here, when to go in that door, when to light the incense, when to not light the incense, when to do those certain things, and not to steal rhinestones out of the bishop's hat. But I didn't bring baggage with me. I think that's a blessing. Some people get saved and they have baggage. And you wrestle with it. You kind of go back and forth. Here's what he's telling those guys. Stop wrestling and put on your big boy pants and believe in Jesus. And so that's what he's going to develop. But for you and I, I know today some of you are going, I don't even know why I came today because I really don't care about the ironic priesthood. I don't care anything about those clothes or what they did or how they got chosen. And this thing about Jesus being priest and king, it's okay, but how does that change my life today? Here's how. You have one who's a great high priest who lives to make intercession for you, who is on the throne, who you can trust through Hard times, bad times. Listen, our world can get as ugly as it gets and Jesus is still on his throne. And you need to be that person that you walk through those things with him. So how do I walk through with him if I don't understand who he is? So sometimes doctrine, you're going, I don't really care. You should because we just, I think we learned a lot about exactly Jesus's ministry here and who he is just by reading what we read today. This is getting you going deeper. In other words, you get your big boy pants and you're gonna get some more in the next few weeks. Some of you just wrote down, skip church for two weeks. <laughs> it's gonna be exciting, we're gonna grow. 
Let's stand up and pray. Father, I do thank you, Lord. I thank you for the challenge. Just thinking about, again, for those guys, thinking about they had to give up. They had to get away from that whole idea that they want to go back or trust and, and the old ways, the, the familiar ways to relate to you. And they have to come and they got to believe in this one. And here's the, here's the thing. Believing in Jesus is so easy. Every time you sin, that's got to be tough. Trying to find a high priest when, when you may be 400 miles away, that's tough. And all of the religions in the world always put pressure on the person. And Jesus came to take our sin and do away with it forever. We can have eternal salvation. And Lord, we rejoice in that today. And we rejoice in you. And I'm gonna ask you to stay in an attitude of prayer for just a couple more minutes. And if you are here today and you do not have a relationship with Jesus, man, today's the day. We were earlier on in, in, uh, in Hebrews, it was today's the day, today, today. And I just wanna encourage you, you need to know that right now, right now, you can step up and you can put your faith in Jesus. And hey, you maybe have come to this church for a long time and today God hits your heart and you know right now you need to make that commitment. You need to ask him to forgive your sins. So if I'm, if I'm talking to you right now, man, yield, give it up to him. The Bible clearly declares that the wages of sin is death. And we talked about that death, not physical death, but separation from God. So if you sinned, that's what you deserve. And here's what I know. Everyone in here has sinned. Everyone. So you've got to come to Jesus and get your sin paid for because he took your sin upon himself and now he offers you this receipt that says paid in full. And you have to trust him. That's what we talked about here. To all who obey him, that's called trusting him. So today I'm gonna lead you in a prayer and you can say this prayer out loud, you can say it silently. The important thing, it's gotta come from your heart, you gotta be sincere. And my prayer is, man, if I'm talking to you today, once again, I don't care if you're visiting for the first time or I don't care if you've been here 10 years, if God is hitting your heart, you need to call on his name and right now is the time to do it. If you're watching online, you can say this prayer with us. If you're backslidden, man, come home, come back to Jesus. Say this prayer, Jesus, today I confess to you that I am a sinner. I'm sorry that I sinned against you, a holy God. And right now I'm asking for forgiveness. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you today for your forgiveness. And now I want you to come into my heart and I want you to change me. I want you to come into my life 
and guide me. I'm asking you today to be my Lord and my Savior.